Inflation for most people is causing them to use their credit cards to try and make up for income shortfalls. How big is this problem? In the second quarter of 2022, Americans added $46 billion to their credit card balances. Some of that could be you. The Federal Reserve Consumer Credit Report showed that the rate of interest on credit cards went from 14.56 to 16.65%. Those Americans struggling with credit card debt saw their delinquency rates escalate from 1.66% to 1.81%. The Cambridge Debt Consolidation Program may be able to help you reduce the interest rates by two-thirds and cut your time to pay off the debt from 30 years years to as little as five years. If you're struggling and you want professional and objective help getting your credit house in order, then call 1-855-435-2066 or go to the website cambridgeyescredit.org forward slash bw hyphen podcast and get your house in order. Welcome to Black and White, a conversation with Dan Perkins. It's time to bring all of us together to talk about the issues that concern us. It's time to hear from people who want to deal with only the facts. And it's time for you, as Americans, to re-engage in your right of freedom of speech. It's time for you to join me in the conversation on Blacks and Whites. Audience about you. Oh, I am. Um, yeah, I, I, yes. My husband, Malcolm, and I are co-authors of most recently, The Pragmatist's Guide to Governance and The Pragmatist's Guide to Crafting Religion. They're the fifth in the Pragmatist Guide series, which also covers life, relationships, and sexuality, of all things. And we together run a travel business called Travel Max, mm -hmm. as well as a nonprofit called the Pragmatist Foundation, which has become engaged in education reform through the Collins Institute, which is a new form of secondary education and perennialist activity. Um, that is to say, we are trying to fight for a soft landing on demographic collapse. Mm. Well, I, 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 based on what you just said, I, I, I have to ask you a quick question. Mm. Have you seen the story out of Seattle that the public school system is closing school buildings because students are leaving the school and they're going to have to lay off teachers and staff and close school buildings because they don't have enough financial support because of their enrollment? to keep the school buildings open. And I also understand it's in Portland. Yeah, I had not heard about Seattle and Portland. I had heard about there being a decline after the pandemic in public schools in New York City. That um, makes perfect sense to us. I mean, homeschooling rates are going up. Um, I don't know what exactly the private school numbers are, but I think the pandemic really laid bare a lot of very already known issues in the education industry for many parents, not just the nature of their kids' education and what teachers were actually doing, um, but also the extent to which schools are not oriented uh, around student outcomes so much as they're oriented around teachers' unions. Um, for example, um, one person found a strong correlation between school closure periods, like how long they lasted and the strength of a teacher's union in that area. So it wasn't about how bad COVID was in that area. It wasn't about the, even like whether it was a progressive or a conservative area, it came down to how strong the teacher's unions were. And that was because teachers just didn't want to go back to school. Um, many of them, I mean, to be fair, like it started side hustles. Why wouldn't you? And it's a lot easier to maintain your side hustle plus a full-time government job with a pension when you don't have to show up in, in person and when you only have, you know, two to four hours of synchronous teaching a day via yeah. Zoom. Now, I, I uh, talked to some people yesterday 
Um, I'm here in, I'm in New York now. I was in New Jersey yesterday and the weekend visiting my, my three sons who were celebrating my youngest grandson's seventh birthday. And we were talking about what's going on in their schools in uh, upstate New York and New Jersey and uh, Washington, D.C. And uh, they're talking about declining enrollment in all, all of those cities. And, and, and the, the, the daughter-in-laws, because I have all sons, were talking about um, homeschooling. And um, I'm from a different generation. Not that there wasn't homeschooling going on when I was there in that space, but it seemed to me at the time that that was a substantial commitment on somebody in the leadership of the household, the mother or the father, to provide homeschooling for a child, which meant that there was a good possibility that whoever was doing the homeschooling had to give up their job either full-time or part-time in order to provide that benefit to the child. Uh, is, is that same thing true today? Or are our parents becoming more accommodative with their lifestyle and focusing more on quality of education for children so they, they homeschool them? This depends on the age of the student. So there are some students for whom homeschooling is a mostly independent thing. You know, once you reach maybe late elementary school and then secondary school, so middle and high school, um, a a self-directed student can homeschool and take care of themselves pretty well. Um, below those ages, you need sort of two services. One is schooling, and that can be handled to a great extent remotely, but there's also the make sure they don't fall downstairs and hurt themselves. Make sure that they, if they need diaper changes, get diaper changes or they need a snack, you know, because they can't necessarily take care of themselves. And that's one of the big issues that was also laid bare by the pandemic is it became really clear that schools were not just for education. I mean, if any, that's like one of the last things on the list that they provided. They provided food services. They provided a place for kids to be during the day because their parents couldn't watch them. So I think in the modern age, yes, it is very much possible for parents to homeschool their kids. There are amazing homeschool compatible programs, including what we're putting together with the Collins Institute, but there are many, many, many others that are amazing. Um, And there's a different program that's right for each student. Um, but they they can only really be compatible with like a parent who's working from home or even parents who go to an office every day when a child or teenager is old enough to take care of themselves physically. Um, so there is a challenge of younger children still needing someone there. With the Collins Institute, um, which is designed to be both homeschooling compatible, but also become something that could be a charter school or a voucher or a scholarship funded um, private school, meaning that anyone could afford it. Our plan is to run the schools out of local libraries and community centers um, and staff them with local residents um, so that a student still has somewhere to go that isn't necessarily like at their parents' house if their parents aren't available or able to keep them at home or if they don't really have a good home to spend the day. Dan, well, in the I last interview I did with you, no, you're, you're coming in that's okay. We'll work with that. Um, so let's, let's talk about taxes on the family. And we were talking about the, the impact on the family from an economic standpoint. 
social interaction. What is it? How does it Dan, I think I've lost you. I just ran an internet speed test and I seem to be okay on my end. Would you like me to rejoin the call? Dan, can you hear me? Dan? Hmm. No, you're back now. Ah, good. Wonderful. Um, we're, we're, we're back connected. Can you hear me, Dan? I There's hear a lot you. of latency. Can Are you, you working me? on a cellular connection? Um, yeah, I'm here. Oh, okay. Ah. Hello, that's better. Okay, there you go. So what I was asking you, you probably didn't hear me. What I was asking you was, given the, the decision of the family to make the decision to bring the children into the home, mm -hmm. does it have impact on other decisions that the family lifestyle, more specifically religion and factors, does that fundamental shift of deciding to educate your children at home is it does it have a does it have significant implications for the rest of the family's life so when children are not old enough to take care of themselves it absolutely does if they don't have a homeschooling program or a series of families with which they can work that gives that child it's very young a place where someone is also taking care of them and watching out for them um, there doesn't need to be a significant lifestyle shift if kids who can take care of themselves, um, like older children and teenagers, are home alone or home with work-at-home parents um, who are just going through a homeschool program on their own, so long as they have enough personal initiative to go through a homeschooling program without someone cracking the whip every day. And hopefully they do, because most good homeschooling programs really encourage intrinsic motivation and people to explore, um, which is great. Um, I would say in terms of religious impact, more people are able to retain their cultures and religions when homeschooling, um, because when you um, use public schooling or private schools that have distinct cultures attached to them, and there's no doubt about it, public school has a distinct culture attached to it, you are more likely to lose your students, your children to that culture over time. Of course, you know, the internet is also a great like place to, to lose your culture. It's not like you're, you're necessarily safe if you just homeschool your kids, um, but it is still a significant factor. Well, I've never homeschooled a child, so I'm, I'm, I'm flying blind here, but I'm curious um, if, if one were to look at the curriculum of a homeschool program, would spirituality be included in that in some way? So there are many religious homeschooling programs that do incorporate spirituality, religion, etc. Um, the way that we have addressed this with the Collins Institute is that it's sort of like an add-on that you can choose to include as a parent or not. Because obviously, if we limited our school to just one religious denomination, that would really limit our overall audience and impact. And our point is that we want everyone to be able to maintain their own religions. We don't want to impose anything on them. So any sort of, like we'll say, um, metaphysical or religious editorializing, um, we leave that up to the choice of parents. Um, so if you are growing up in a religious tradition um, as a student and your parents want you to keep you in that religious tradition, there are a couple of options. One is you just put them in a religious homeschooling program or send them to a religious private school. The other is you send them to public school or a, another type of sort of generic or other religions private school. Um, 
but then you send them to after school programs that are related to that culture. And many religions have these. Um, I remember my Mormon classmates went to some, my Jewish classmates went to some, my Chinese classmates went to some, you know, everyone has sort of their own version. Um, and then the, the final option is just to really hammer home your religious life um, in you know, sort of your family life on weekends, you go to church, you go to religious services, you practice religious, tra religious traditions at home. So it really depends. And I think there are many ways to approach it. It really depends on the parents and the individual child. So we know many families that are very religious and they do their very best to raise their children within that religion, but some of their kids just do better at public school. So they send those students to public school and some students do better at home in a homeschooling program. So you also have to factor in the style and need of each individual child. Now, um, the last time we talked, you were talking about some of the th things that are coming down the pipe, uh, maybe initially indicated, but, but could grow. And one of those issues we talked about was a rebirth of religion. I didn't get a chance to ask you the question, so I'll, I'll take it, the opportunity today to ask you the question. What do you think is causing that? I think humans' hunger for for religion, for a community, and for a feeling of of meaning and belonging in their lives. You know, these are very deep drives we have. I think we we also hunger for them as a reaction to the negative effects that we get from the lack of culture. So, um, in our the previous conversation that we were in, um, we discussed how culture has evolved on top of human biological evolution to support humans thriving and innovating um, in rapidly evolving environments in, in the face of large cities and then civilizations and then technology. Um, and now with culture being erased by some people, some people just growing up in the absence of any cultural or religious traditions, people are discovering you know, that there's this, this blossoming of mental illness, this blossoming of health problems, this blossoming of so many ills. And a lot of this, we argue in the Pragmatist Guide to Crafting Religion, is the product of an absence of religion. So I think a lot of the hunger for religion and for culture in general and tradition and community comes from a, a reaction to to basically a biological being existing in a hyper-networked, large, you know, cities, uh, technologically connected, globalized environment, not li like literally not having the biological tools to deal with that, and just crashing and burning in the face of it, um, and and discovering that that doesn't work so well for them, and, and maybe there's this intuitive sense that we need religion and culture to resolve that. Um, people are certainly turning to elements of old religious and cultural traditions to try to solve some of these problems. Um, but I think that's a major element of it is that intuitively we discovered something really, really bad happens in the absence of this. I, I want to ask you, because uh, I'm, I'm in the process of doing some research for a commentary. I write almost every week some kind of commentary. Um, and I, I want to take what you're just talking about, and I want to ask you a question uh, make an observation first, then a question. It seems to me, and I don't know why, it seems to me that our society wants to punish women and girls more so than men. And let me give you a couple You really think so? Interesting. I, I do. I've, I've been doing some of the research on transgender and the um, 
I know this is going to sound terrible to put it this way, but it just popped in my mind as I began thinking about it recently. It's like the, uh, the scrambled eggs and ham. A chicken lays an egg, a pig gives up its life to produce ham. What we're looking at is that in the transgender, the commitment for a female to, to physically try to become a male is much greater, more painful than a male trying to become a female, at least what they call the, the top portion. And I look at the studies that I keep seeing about the amount of depression of girls versus boys and higher suicide rates for girls than for boys. And I, 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 I'm beginning to think that our society, for whatever reason, has um, punished girls and women more so than men. And um, the one thing that I've also noticed is the absence of the women's movement speaking out about what's going on. And so I, I, I'm, I'm concerned that young girls and women are paying the price for some agenda of other people that may not have really have the, the, the concerns and the needs of women and, and girls. I'll push back on that. Um, I think okay. that uh, a lot of people have connected the increasing numbers of um, female to male transition that are not as a result of, of genuine um, gender dysphoria are, are more a product of the same drives that had previously driven young women to cut themselves or become anorexics. Like there's always some kind of um, self-hatred that could lead women to conclude, oh, maybe the solution is that I'm not female. Um, that's sort of the current conclusion. Whereas before, before it was like, oh, well, maybe the solution is I should kill myself or maybe the solution is I should be thinner. Like there's always this self-hatred that results um, from female adolescence, it seems it's pretty consistent. Um, and, and we, we think it has more to do with that when, even when this is not like a case of genuine gender dysphoria. Um, I mean, I would also push back on, um, the transition being more painful for female to male than for male to female. Um, just considering the, the surgeries and the, the impacts of hormones. I mean, it's, it's sort of a toss up, I think in the end, when you consider sort of the, the various treatments that are involved, both are very, very difficult to go through. Um, and then I would also argue that really, um, we'll say sexually average, uh, white men are, are, are like really the ones who are catching the brunt of this. You know, we have a whole movement that's, that's arguing that boys should be, um, red shirted, that is um, held back a year in school so that they're not held as that as at much of a disadvantage. Public schools are very biased against young young boys who are much more likely to be boisterous and to speak out and to speak up. Um, so I, I think it's I, I worry more as a parent about my boys than I, I worry about our current daughter and, and future daughters. Um, they're they're up against much harder things. And there's also some really interesting stats I have seen recently that I wish I could pull up now um, on um, who's getting hired. And we look at who's getting hired. Um, the the rates of of, of white men, um, especially white um, sexually average men, um, getting hired are are just plummeting right now, as well as being admitted to universities. It's it's looking really bad. And then finally, you know, this is so bad that there's literally a movement called uh, transmaxing, where you have a bunch of men who, not because they have gender dysphoria, but because they just see that it's so bad to be a man, um, are, are undergoing 
uh, sexual uh, transition. They're they're transitioning to to women by taking estrogen, by even in some cases undergoing surgery. Um, You wouldn't see movements like that if it didn't suck so much to be especially a white male. Um, So yeah, I, I would I would just push back on those fronts, and I, I think that the there is there is a cultural problem behind girls um, suffering in in adolescence. Like I think that there are many cultures that provide better outlets for the general hormonal tendencies that girls undergo in puberty. Um, but I would say that that's much more of a natural phenomenon that that should be dealt with cultural, and it's not not a not a product per se of women being. Um, victimized or marginalized in some way, especially in modern society. Um, I was reading a report yesterday and it was, it was talking about gender identification issue is um, based on the percentage per hundred thousand. It's about 10 times uh, more prevalent in the United States than it is in Europe. Hmm. Of, uh, of people undergoing hormonal transition. Right. Well, that's right. interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think there's more of a supportive culture of it in the United States. Um, and um, what we found in in our research, and like I said, we one of our our previous books is on sexuality, and we did extensive research on general sexuality. Um, we discovered that, I mean, in the end, it's a lot more complicated than you would hope, right? Like in the end, most not most, a lot of people are not particularly attached to their genders. Like if I woke up tomorrow as a man. Like what I go through, like the surgeries and the hormonal treatment to like fix that and then become a woman again, probably not. And like a lot of people um, have that same reaction. This also shows up in how people choose to manifest when playing in purely like digital environments where people don't know what their gender is. Like, you know, if they're choosing a video game avatar um, and they often just choose the other gender. So so sort of the rates at what you would consider to be like um, non-binary, at least, status um, among populations are actually pretty high. Like in general, a lot of people just don't care that much. Um, I think in the United States, because the issue has become so polarized and politicized, um, people are encountering that, or they're encountering other um, other issues people have around identity, depression, stress, um, general, like not being happy with oneself. And they're saying, ah, you need to now transition your gender. We have a treatment for this, you know, let's, um, let's fix it with, with hormones and surgery and things like that. And that, that is a problem because these are often very irreversible things. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that the U S the U S issue is more of a, uh, sort of highly politicized, politicized culture issue and not so much a, like, people are catching um, gender dysphoria here, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Well, fortunately, we're, we're out of time. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. How do people get the new book? They can go to Amazon.com and search Pragmatist Guide to Crafting Religion. We would love to hear from anyone as well. So they can email us at, at hello at pragmatistfoundation.com. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure. I hope you have a nice afternoon. Thank you. Same to you. And we'll be right back. We are Americans, male and female, from many races and cultures from all over the world. One thing above all else is we are patriots who protect our nation and defend, when necessary, our Constitution from attacks both foreign and domestic. Today, as American patriots, we must take back our country from those who want to destroy it and us. 
we must start by taking back our children and their education. Parents, not union, should be in charge of our children's education. We must be sure that they are taught about the greatness of America and its people. Our children should not be indoctrinated with the belief that parents are racist and are evil and trying to destroy the world. As patriots, we must take back our country from foreign nations who want to destroy us and our way of life. Yes, as patriots, we want America to be first. We want an open and fair trade policy, energy independence, safe cities, and secure borders where we can grow and prosper as a nation of free people. Become an American patriot. Help take back America by voting Republican. Why do Democrats hate Americans so much? When Hillary was running for president, she said half of Donald Trump's supporters were, quote, a basket of deplorables. Recently, Joe Biden, at a speech in Philadelphia, told America that half of us are semi-fascist terrorists. Under the First Amendment of the Constitution, we have the right to express our opinions. And if we disagree with the left, they don't have the right to take away our freedom of speech. Clearly, the statement by Hillary and Biden are designed to silence the conservatives in America. Many Americans find it easier to go along with the left and give up their right to disagree. What would America look like today if our founding fathers would have given in to the king and not fought for their freedom? Today we must fight to take America back. Join the new generation of patriots who believe in the Constitution. Join the new revolution in America. Thank you for joining us today, and we'd like to hear your comments or questions. So go to bwradionetwork.com. That's bwradionetwork.com and give us your questions or comments. And thanks for joining us today. If you're enjoying this show, I invite you to go to blacksandwhites.us to look at the show menu of other people who are joining our network to express their opinions in a free and open way. Come join us.